You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, uh, we're in Exodus this morning, kicking off this new series. Uh, Exodus chapter 1 begins on page 45 of most of those black hardcover Bibles under your seat. And uh, as we get this series underway, I just want to invite you to consider that few people in human history have the name recognition of Moses. Like across time and space, all over the world, there are very few. He's on a short list of people that have as much name recognition. Whether you personally picture him as a flannel graph character from your childhood, or Charlton Heston from the movie Ten Commandments, or maybe you hear the voice of Val Kilmer Uh, from The Prince of Egypt, the animated movie that came out more recently, or none of the above, it's okay if it's none of those things, Uh, you likely are familiar with some of the monumental events of his life. His birth, the burning bush, the plagues, uh, crossing the Red Sea on, on dry ground, receiving the Ten Commandments. Moses is, is the great emancipator of Israel. He is the one that led the people of Israel out of their slavery, out of Egypt. Uh, Moses is the lawgiver. He's the one through whom God revealed his law and said, this is how you are to live in a way that that honors me. He's the the author, at least from a human standpoint, of a sizable portion of your Bible. Moses wrote the first five books of our Bibles, the Pentateuch, as as it's called. He also wrote Psalm 90 that we even sing sometimes together here. And at least according to the the church historian Josephus, at least according to him, Moses was also a military commander. Uh, He led, as a young man, Egypt's army to capture two two cities. But more than any of this, more than any of this, Moses is a forerunner. Moses is a harbinger. Moses is a prelude. In the story of God's redemption, Moses' life points beyond himself and all the way to Jesus. The Israelites, as we're going to see in this series, they needed desperately a prophet and a deliverer. And God's answer was Moses. He was a, a man of faith, a man of courage, a man of humility, a man of deep intimacy with God. He's a man who in so many ways is an example worth following for you and I. But he was also a deeply flawed man with impulsive anger. He's an angry man at times with a lot of doubt, plagued by even self-doubt on many occasions. And if you know his story, you know that, that God did not allow him to complete the work he began. He was the one that led the people out of Egypt, but he died before getting to lead them into the promised land. So ultimately, Moses' life shows us that while the people of God definitely do need a prophet deliverer, we need a better one than Moses. We need a better one than Moses. This morning, we get to kick off this, this fall series that we're calling Delivered, God's Providence and Power in the Life of Moses. And over these weeks ahead, we'll primarily be in the book of Exodus. Occasionally, we'll jump around a little bit to some other texts. Uh, But here at Liberty Church, we really appreciate doing a series in the Old Testament every fall. Uh, For many, and maybe this includes you, uh, the Old Testament is less familiar. It's maybe a little bit more intimidating, a little more confusing. 
But the Old Testament is always pointing forward to Jesus. And so as we get to walk together through Moses' story, what I really hope for us is that it, that it gets us ready for Advent. Uh, I hope that this series builds your anticipation for the season that we get to celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world. Because though there is a, a ton that we will learn from Moses as an example, the absolute best thing that this series could do in your life, the absolute best thing this series could do in the life of our, of our church is to deepen our sense of how much we need a deliverer, how much we need deliverance from sin. Because the more clearly that we see that, the more beautiful and the more worthwhile the greater exodus of Jesus becomes. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into to this new series. Let me pray. Lord God, this morning, even in this very moment, and throughout the weeks ahead in this sermon series, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us strength and eyes to see his glory? And we pray that in his name. Amen. So we're going to make our way this morning through uh, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Exodus. I'm going to read three separate portions of that as we go. But here's the three things that we're going to explore together today. The backstory, how we got here. Second, the birth, how Moses entered the scene. And then third, the becoming, how Moses started to become who he really was. The backstory, the birth, the becoming. First, let's talk about the backstory. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is God's word. In the original Hebrew language, the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. And. Your grammar teacher told you never to do that. You know, your language arts teacher said, don't start sentences with conjunctions. Moses said, hold my staff. <laughs> Not just a sentence, the whole book of Exodus. I'm going to start it with the word and. But there's real meaning to starting like this. It's telling us that this is the continuation of a story that is already underway. It's telling us that this is part of something older and bigger than Moses. Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off with just this, you know, small gap of four centuries in between. Uh, one of the things actually that we're going to see in Moses' life is a disproportionate sense of time. Whole chapters are going to get devoted to a single instance, something that takes a matter of a day or even a few hours. On the other hand, centuries or decades are going to pass by with a simple word like and. But if we're going to understand Exodus, if we're going to understand the life of Moses, we need to know the backstory. We need to know how we got here. And so if we were to go back, not all the way to the beginning, but to Genesis chapter 12, God promised Moses' ancestor, Abraham, that he would become a great nation. 
and that he would occupy a specific and sizable plot of land. But just a few chapters later, and perhaps well less known, God made a far less encouraging promise to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, which is his name before he became Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. In other words, Abraham's family, God's promising, is going to be a great nation. They are going to possess this land, but it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while, and it's going to be on the other side of some really immense suffering. But God continues in that same passage in the next verse, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So the rest of Genesis then starts to trace out that story. There's Abraham, then there's Isaac, then there's Jacob. He's also called Israel. That's his, his other name. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the figureheads of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's sons is named Joseph. And Joseph, if you remember his story, if you're familiar with his story, when he's a young man, he gets uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. Here's the question. Where does Joseph end up? Egypt. Yeah, when, I, when I'm asking questions through this series, you can totally, it doesn't have to be rhetorical. You guys can, can respond. Egypt. Uh, and then after, in Egypt, after this unjust stint in prison, Joseph ends up as the second in command of Egypt. And he ends up there just in time to oversee food distribution during a widespread famine. That's actually how the Israelites, the, the descendants of Abraham, end up in Egypt. Eventually, Joseph gets to welcome his reconciled brothers and his fathers to come and live there, to escape the, the famine that's playing out all across the world. And so their family, as we read in the opening of Exodus, their family, 70 people, move from where they were in the promised land down to Egypt. Once they're there, the, the first 70 or so years, uh, the rest of Joseph's lifetime, it goes pretty well. It goes pretty well. As Moses is recounting here in these opening verses, the Israelites are fruitful and they multiply and they fill the land. And if that language sounds familiar, it's the, it's the exact same phrase that God says to Adam and Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he gives them their mandate. How are, how are we to live as his image bearers? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Israelites in Egypt have no problem fulfilling that. They come to Egypt as this 70-person family. When they leave, when the exodus happens 430 years later, just the men number 600,000. And so when you count the women and children, the estimates are as high as 2 million people. They go from 70 to 2 million in those four centuries. But we will find out quickly, not everyone appreciates that fruitfulness. Not everyone appreciates their multiplication, namely the new king, the new pharaoh of Egypt. We didn't get to read the rest of, of chapter one. There's going to be times in this series because we're covering big blocks of text that we can't read uh, everything that we're covering. So I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter one this week. But Pharaoh proceeds to implement this plan. He's fearful. They're getting too big. There's too many Israelites. They might turn against us. He implements this plan to oppress and subdue them, which keeps backfiring. So first, conscripted labor, forced labor. Maybe that'll wear them down and stop the multiplication. Not even a little bit. It says the people multiply even more. Okay, they just, they're even more fruitful. There's even more Israelites born. So Pharaoh multiplies the oppression. 
He multiplies the oppression. It's not just forced labor, but as it says uh, later in chapter 1, bitter, ruthless slavery is inflicted upon them. Then he enlists the Hebrew midwives to kill all the, the male babies. But they fear God more than they fear man, and so they rightfully disobey Pharaoh's orders. They let the babies live. Pharaoh's plan keeps backfiring. So finally, he commands all the people, not just a couple midwives, but everyone, hey, when you see a male Hebrew baby, kill it, throw it into the Nile River, which is effectively genocide. That's what Pharaoh's doing. It's effectively genocide. The boys will die. The girls eventually will grow up. And if they get married, we'll marry Egyptians and we'll have Egyptian children. Eventually there will be no one to to carry on, the Israelite people. So it's into this story that Moses is born. And and we're going to talk about his birth in a second, but I just would encourage you to let this opening of Exodus remind you this morning that there is a massive backstory to your life. There's a massive backstory to your life. Moses' story did not begin at his birth, and neither did yours. Neither did yours. We we live in a hyper-individualistic culture. We are, in our society, we are obsessed with ourselves. We see ourselves at the center of absolutely everything. We evaluate every event and every interaction primarily by how it impacts me. Part of that is is simply our fallen human nature. We we are self-centered because of that. We are always trying to put ourselves in the position of God. But I would argue that, that especially in our cultural moment, we are wired this way to the degree, to the degree that if you and I were to get into a time machine together this morning and we were to go back just a few decades, like 30 or 40 years, still in our area, still in the West, still in the United States, and we were to go back just 30 or 40 years, most of us would be diagnosed with narcissism. That's how much things have changed in that direction, even in the last several decades. Just one example because there could be many. One example, when you're on a video call, FaceTime or Teams or Zoom or whatever one you use for work or personal life, whose face are you most often looking at? Can we be honest about, can we like this be a safe space? We can be honest. Whose face are you looking at most during it? You're looking at your own, right? You're looking at your own. Here's this technology made so you can see in real time the face of another human being on the other side of the world, and we use it like a mirror. It's like, yeah, well, this is like a mirror. I want to see how I look in this, in this video. You guys don't do that? Okay, some nods. Man, you guys are just better people than I am. I'm, okay, I'm the one that's, that, okay, that's fine. That's fine. But we have to intentionally fight against this hyper-individualism. And, and, and one of the best ways to do that is to remember that you are a chapter in a book that is not about you. That you are a supporting actor, not the main actor. You're a supporting actor in a story that started long before you and will continue long after you and does not have you as the focal point. If Moses, who was one of the most name-recognized people in history, in the history of humanity, if he can root his life in the bigger story of God's redemption, so can we. So must we. Like Moses, our lives have incredible potential to display, to enact the story of God. But we always have to remember that the story you are in, God's story of the world, began long before you and it will continue long after. 
So that's the backstory. It's the backstory. Second, let's talk about Moses' birth. And I'm going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. You can follow along with me as I read. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said, take, said, said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. So in the midst of, of slavery, in the midst of attempted genocide, Moses' birth story is incredible. His birth story is incredible. But I would invite you to consider this morning that nothing about his birth is miraculous. Nothing about his birth is attributed to the supernatural direct intervention of God. And at least for me, that's fascinating. That's fascinating because in his lifetime, Moses has more miracles associated with him than anyone else in the Bible except for Jesus. Like so much about his life is miraculous. The burning bush, which we'll look at next week, the plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from the rock. These are all miracles. On and on we go. So what you would expect is that Moses' birth would also be miraculous. But what we see here is that instead of a miracle, it's filled with evidences of God's providence. God's providence. Instead of God directly and supernaturally intervening, God accomplishes his purposes in this story through the courageous but ordinary actions of people. So where do we see the providence of God in the the account of Moses' birth? Well, first, we see it in his parents' marriage and family. We don't learn their names here, but in chapter 6 of Exodus, we learn that Moses' father is a man named Amram. His mother is a woman named Jochebed. They get married, and they start to have kids in the midst of immense suffering and oppression. They have a a daughter first named Miriam. They have a son named Aaron. They have Moses a few years after that. There are plenty of reasons for them not to have kids. Not to have kids. It takes courage to bring kids into the world when circumstances are bleak. And there's a lot of people in our society, in our world today, and, and maybe that includes you, maybe that includes people that you're friends with or members of your family, Uh, who are freaked out by things like climate change, who are freaked out by overpopulation. And one of the ways that they're trying to deal with that fear is by choosing to not bring more kids into the world. But here we find an ordinary couple choosing to pursue the fruitfulness, the multiplication that God has called them to. And God's providence is at work in their 
Simple and ordinary faithfulness. Just choosing to do what God's called them to do, even when the circumstances look impossible. This account then goes on to highlight God's providence through the efforts of five different women. Five different women play a huge role in the story of Moses' birth and early life. The first two are the two Hebrew midwives. Their names are Shifra, Shifra and Pua. Now get this, the most powerful man in the world at the time, the Pharaoh of Egypt, tells them to kill the male babies. But they don't fear that man as much as they fear God. And so they don't listen to him. And their courageous defiance, that's what even sets the stage for Moses to, to live, to be born. Then his mother, Jochebed, hides Moses for three months, cares for him through the exhaustion of sleeplessness and midnight feedings and dirty diapers, and then puts him into a basket in the Nile River. And it's no mistake here that the word for basket in this text is the same word that was used back in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 for the word ark. The basket is the ark. Like Noah, God is going to spare Moses from a watery grave. So his mother is supposed to cast him as a baby, just cast him into the Nile River without anything. Just throw him in, let him die. Instead, in faith, she puts him in the ark and the river becomes a place of life. Then Moses' sister, we find out later her name's Miriam, keeping watch over her, her baby brother, making it seem like a coincidence when she has this interaction with Pharaoh's daughter. And she, she gets to facilitate this connection that allows Moses' mother to not only keep her son and nurture her son in her home longer, but to get paid for doing that. That's the providence of God. And then finally, Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. She recognizes, as it says in this text, that he's a, a Hebrew child. He's one her, her father has condemned to die. But she has pity, she has compassion on him and and takes him into her home. So in this ironic twist, again, in the providence of God, the deliverer of the Israelites, the one that will go head to head with Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt, grows up in Pharaoh's house. Grows up in Pharaoh's house. So again, Moses' birth is incredible. It's incredible. But it is far more an example of God's providence than it is an example of a miracle. A couple different implications for this. First, it means, unfortunately, that we won't get to sing that song from the Prince of Egypt about miracles. Okay? I know you were really hoping we were going to do it today. Jordan and I were prepping for weeks. He was going to sing Whitney Houston's part. I was going to sing Mariah Carey's. It was going to be magical. Okay? Then Jordan this week was like, hey, Matt, I think this story is actually more about God's providence uh, than a miracle. And just totally just was a downer. So we're like, okay, let's not sing that song this morning. That's not true. You guys can, okay, all right. You, you know that well enough. But the real implication, the real implication, recognize the potential of your everyday actions. Recognize the potential of your everyday faithfulness. Right? That, that is the venue in which the providence and power of God are on display. And this is actually the, the point to hold intention with the first one. Right? We, we have to know the backstory. We have to remember that we are not at the center of the world. But our smallness never means insignificance. We are in the design of God, in the providence of God, both small and significant. So when when you choose to fear God more than you fear man, like these midwives did, when you get married and have kids, even when your circumstances feel bleak, 
like Amram and Jochebed, when, when you keep your eye on the vulnerable like Miriam, when you have compassion on the vulnerable like Pharaoh's daughter, God in his providence will take the places of death and transform them into places of life. He'll transform the places of death into the places of life. Your everyday faithfulness has that kind of potential. And so what I would say to you is by all means, long and pray for God to supernaturally intervene. Long for God to do direct, miraculous kinds of intervention in your life, the lives of people you love, this world. Pray those Jesus-only prayers that we talked about during our prayer series. But as you do, apply yourself to the seemingly mundane, daily, faithful actions. And then watch the providence of God weave that into his great deliverance. It's the backstory and the birth. Third and finally, let's talk about his becoming. How did Moses start to become who he really was? How did he start to become who he really was? I'm going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is God's word. Moses' early life set him up for an identity crisis. It set him up for an identity crisis. Is he a Hebrew or is he an Egyptian? Even his name has some ambiguity. On this, on this front. As it says there in chapter 2, verse 10, when Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, it was because he was drawn out of the Nile. And in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, Moses sounds like the word draw out. That's Moses' story. He is drawn out from the Nile River. He is rescued from an otherwise certain death. But in Egyptian, in the Egyptian language, Moses also has a meaning. Moses would mean something like born of the Nile. Born of the Nile. And either one works, doesn't it? Either one works. Born to a Hebrew family, raised by an Egyptian, with a name that makes sense in either, it's setting up a day where Moses, Moses is going to have to choose. And that day comes in the second half of chapter 2. We see how Moses starts to become who he really was. He sees the, the burdens and the oppression of the Hebrews and it's an interesting, kind of tips his hand a little bit in verse 11. It says, his people. And something deep inside him when he sees this comes to life. 
Centuries later, we read about this in Acts chapter 7. The early church leader Stephen is on trial. He's recounting the history of the people of God. And Stephen says that at this point in Moses' life, he would have been around 40 years old, but he already had a sense that God was raising him up to bring deliverance to his people. He was still in Egypt. He was still living in Pharaoh's house, but he was starting to recognize God was raising him up to be a deliverer. Even so, it does not make it an easy choice. Remember, he is raised with all of the wealth and the education and the opportunities of Egyptian royalty. There's some scholars that even think that Moses was being prepared to be Pharaoh, to become Pharaoh himself someday. So you can have that. Here's the choice in front of him in this moment. You can have that, or you can have the ruthless, bitter slavery that the Hebrew people are experiencing. The book of Hebrews, written centuries later, tells us what Moses chose. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Moses chose mistreatment over the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses chose his real identity, son of Amram, son of Levi, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, rather than remaining in Pharaoh's house forever. And it's an incredible choice. It's an example that we should follow to choose the right thing instead of the easy thing. To, to side with the oppressed and the vulnerable, even when it costs us dearly. But the critical error that Moses made in this moment was attempting to force the timing. Attempting to force the timing. He tried to start to usher in deliverance by an exertion of his own strength rather than patiently waiting on the timing and strength of God. And as a result, as we read, he became a murderer. He became a murderer. He, he was then rejected as a deliverer by fellow Hebrews. They said to him, hey, thank you for doing that. They didn't say that to him. They said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? We don't want you to deliver us. It wasn't, and then he had to flee Egypt and he spent the next 40 years wandering with the Midianites. It was not until we find out next week, we find out it was not until he was 80 years old that he returned to be the deliverer that God was raising him up to be. So how do we become who we really are? How do you and I become who we really are? It always includes both our resolve, our choices, and our being brought low. And our being brought low. Moses resolved to identify with his real family, even in their slavery. It's an incredible choice. But it would be decades before Moses fully became who he was. Why? Why such this long period of time in between? Moses had to be brought low enough to learn to depend on God's power instead of his own. D.L. Moody described Moses' life like this. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning that he was a nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. 40, thinking he's somebody, 40, learning he's a nobody, 40, seeing what God can do with a nobody. And I just would invite you to consider this morning, where are you at in that framework? 
Where, where are you at in that journey right now? Because sitting here in this room where you are this morning, you are an image bearer of God. You were created for a relationship with him. You are invited into his family. You are meant to become a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You'll have to resolve to live like a son or daughter. You'll have to resolve and choose to do that over and against the alternate identities that are more appealing at times, that that look more fun, that look more satisfying, that certainly look easier. Like Moses, you will have to resolve again and again to leave the fleeting pleasures of sin and to be identified with the people of God instead, even when that means suffering, even when that means mistreatment. But even when you do, because many of you in this room, thankfully, have made that choice, have that resolve. But even when you do, the road to becoming who you are is far from over. Because there's almost certainly still parts of you and parts of me that still think we're somebody. That still think we're somebody. That that forgets the backstory. That forgets who this story is really about. That forgets how small we really are. And so, so maybe today, maybe that describes where you're at right now. Maybe you're in the middle of being brought low. Maybe you're learning you're a nobody. Which speaking for someone that's had to go through Moments of that, and no doubt certainly has more in my life to go, those are really painful and trying moments. When you think you're somebody, and then God says, actually, you're not. Actually, you're not. It's a hard and painful thing to learn. Here's the hope. As you learn it, as you learn it, you begin to discover just how much God can do with a nobody. And not just how much God can do, how much God delights to do with a nobody. Because here's the good news. It's not just Moses. It's you and me. It's you and me that have been caught up into God's great work of deliverance. Centuries after Moses' birth, during another immense period of suffering for God's people, and in the midst of another tyrant's slaughter of the innocents, a greater deliverer would be born. And trading something infinitely more valuable than the treasures of Egypt, trading the very treasures of heaven, Jesus Christ chose to be identified with his people. Jesus resolved to bear the reproach of our sin, humanity's sin, so that by his death and resurrection, not just Abraham's family, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation might join the greatest exodus, might with Jesus, following Jesus, walk out of our own bondage to slavery, walk out of our own bondage to death. Remember, men and women, remember the story that you are in. Remember this morning that you are both small and significant. Resolve to live like the son or daughter of God that you are meant to be through Jesus Christ. And then embrace how God brings you low because it will help you see just how much he delights to do with nobodies like Moses and nobodies like us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you this morning, Father, for making divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We praise you for Moses' life and the fact that he wrote so much of it down because what it stirs in us is a longing for Jesus. What it stirs in us is a reminder of our need for a greater deliverer and a greater deliverance. And so we rejoice that we were born in your providence in a time that actually gets to look back on that greater deliverance accomplished by Jesus. And we're grateful now that we get to this morning come to this table 
And we get to participate in the meal that Jesus gave us to enact that good news. That Jesus, it was by your body and blood offered up for our sin that we have walked out of our bondage to sin and walked out of our bondage to death. And so I pray that as we come this morning, we would come with renewed gratitude and appreciation of the deliverance, Jesus, that you have won. And that you would this morning and throughout this series, uh, that you would stir in us a deeper worth, a a deeper appreciation of the worth and beauty of, of what you have accomplished. And so we pray all those things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.